Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Rehumanized podcast. We were on a brief hiatus while me and Emiliano were just busy doing other things out in the community. And so we are very excited to be back um, in February of 2023 for this episode with our guest, Missy Martinez Stone. Missy works with, um, actually, she's the CEO of Reprotection. It's a newer pro life group, relatively. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been making a lot of waves in the past year. And we are excited to share our platform with her and hear a little bit about the work that she's been doing and what maybe you can do in your own communities to help fight the abortion industrial complex. So welcome, Missy. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I always love hanging out with the Rehumanized crew and uh, go back a long way with a lot of the members and the founder. And so um, it's always a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You got your start in Students for Life, right? I did. Yes, I did. I started at Students for Life of America 10 years ago. I truly cannot believe it's been that long. Um, I had just graduated from college and was looking for what what does a pro-life career look like? I have no idea. So I moved back to the DC area and was just trying to put my feelers out for how do I dedicate my life to ending abortion and Students for Life at the time was looking to take their collegiate program and open it into high schools and they said, can you do that? And I said, sure, (laughs) why not? Um, So I actually started their entire high school program and then uh, eventually ended up as their field director overseeing the entire student outreach. So I was there for about six years. And um, that was my my introduction to full-time pro-life work. And I believe that's when we met. Um, you were a student. I came at, I came to your school at some point. Um, but yeah, that's it's been 10 years. I really can't believe it. Yeah. I feel like there's a whole lot of people in the movement who got their start with Students for Life of America yeah. either. Which is one of the things they do super well. well. Yeah. 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 They, yeah. No, they, they get people I, into I, the career. So yeah, that is definitely um, uh, something I appreciate from Students for Life that I feel like, uh, uh, especially when I know young people who are like, I want to work in the movement. I'm like, well, I know of at least one place that's hiring yeah. almost <laughs> Right, you can start. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever yeah, go to so, Northwestern? Oh, did I ever go to Northwestern? I don't believe so. Um okay. Yeah, so I was a regional coordinator for, so I worked with all the high school programs everywhere, and then I was the regional coordinator for the kind of the southern region at the time, because that's where I was originally from, and I ended up at UPIT because uh, they needed people to come help and do a display. It was it was that point when Student Strike was really small, and so it was very much like all hands on deck, like who's at the office, who we literally got in a van and drove to you pit to do this display it was just everybody from the office went that day so um that's when i met her but i don't think i ever ended up at northwestern okay we had at some point actually i think it might have been reagan reagan barklage who yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of came and visited us at northwestern yeah um, when we were yeah so reagan was a student i was a regional coordinator for and then i hired her as the regional as the regional coordinator for the area and then when i left student for life she took my job <laughs> so, uh, cool. that's how long it's been yeah <laughs> wild yeah you know we're entering in like the phase of millennialness where we can like speak in terms of decades 
I know, I know. But, you know, it was interesting because while I loved, you know, Students for Life and I credit them for giving me my start, I really realized that even in that position that I wasn't in my, fully in my gifts. Like I realized like I'm not an activist. I'm not um, going out like and talking to people and doing these on-campus displays. Like I was just so far outside of, my gifting and I could do it, but it was, it was costing too much of my soul. You know, it's just like, I'm not an extrovert. I don't like controversy. Like I, Kristen would get frustrated with me because I would go on campuses and I would diffuse every situation um, because I was more interested in just like having thoughtful, kind conversations, you know? And I just realized like, I am not in my niche. Like I, my gifts are, you know, policy, research, administration, strategy, more like let's create a process, let's make things efficient. And on, on campus activism is not that. And there's some people that are really good at it. But I just kind of had this realization where I felt a little bit like a fish out of water and had a moment where I had to step back and say, what is my place? And so the idea of reprotection was starting to kind of, um, simmer around different national leaders. They were realizing there was an issue with enforcement of, you know, pro-life laws, abortion regulations. And I sat down, David B. Wright, the founder of 40 Days for Life, and I were having lunch about something about the pregnancy scenarios on the board, something completely unrelated. And he starts telling me about this idea that he has. And he's like, we really need somebody to come in, that's more of an administrator, that's a process person, and starts describing my dream job. And I said, David, that's what I do. Like the, those are like that you need someone to come in and build a strategy, build a process, like research. Anyway, so he's like telling me about this thing. So that's how I got pulled into reprotection and starting that. But it was really me like finding out what are my gifts? How can I best serve the movement, but also serve myself in the process? Because I don't want to be doing something that is costing me so much emotionally when you're outside of that like range. So that's kind of how I got swung over to reprotection. <laughs> well, tell us exactly what reprotection yeah. is for the listeners. Uh, before yeah, we start- so we... Oh, Actually, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say... Uh, before we start in on that, I uh, wanted to say that that's uh, really inspiring because I think we do have uh, lots of times in the movement uh, a big focus on activism. And of course, that is uh, something that's really important. But as someone who is also not very extroverted, uh, that's something that is, you know, it, it, it I think you said it well, it, it's uh, not just draining, you're giving of yourself in, in a way right. that doesn't replenish necessarily. Yes. Um, so uh, what would you say then uh, is the space for um, this other type of, mm-hmm. of not activism? I think we overuse the word activism and sometimes we think anything that has to do with a cause is sure. activism. So what, what would you call this, this space of what reprotection does? And I yeah, so there's to, to sure there's there's activism in the public square, you know, and that's the stuff that we think that's holding the signs, that's you know taking the displays on campus, that's like you know pushing to have conversations and dialogue, which there's absolutely a place for that, and there's people that are really good at it. 
another sidewalk advocacy. There's the people that are out that are engaging the women in crisis. Again, I would be a terrible sidewalk advocate because my my anxiety would just get the best of me. I would not know what to do. I'm not. I would not be good in that space. Like anything that's like engaging the public, engaging in that dialogue. I would say is like activism in the public square. What we do is much more behind the scenes. Um, it's I I kind of jokingly say like calling all pro life introverts. It's it's the people like we are we're pulling documentation, we're reading reports, we're writing complaints. It's it's all things that you can do um, more from a, a, a in the background. So like we're still engaging in activism because we're working to shut down abortion facilities, but we're taking a role that isn't so public, you know. And and honestly, when reprotection was started, our our original dream was to be completely secret. Like, let's not know what we don't want anybody to know what we're doing and who we are. Like, we wanted to completely um, almost engage like like a CIA or something like we're going to be completely underground. But quickly, we realized that's not a good fundraising strategy. So we couldn't do it because <laughs> we needed funding for our work. Um, but it's a way to engage with the issue without having to like publicly discourse without, you know, like you can do it kind of um, within your home, you're at, you're at your computer, we're writing, we're researching, we're reading, you know, so it just engages a different level of your skills in your brain, I, I would say. Uh, back to my original question, though, of, well, what exactly is it that you're doing with reprotection? Yeah. So we uh, help pro-life advocates shut down the abortion facilities in their communities. And so back in 2019, actually 2018, when I was approached about starting this organization, I, national leaders had identified this gap between laws being passed, so abortion regulations being passed, or even general medical practitioner rules being passed. And because of the controversy controversy of abortion and because uh, you know people that were at the health department, the medical boards that were in charge of actually doing the regulating, if they didn't agree with that regulation or if they didn't want to deal with the backlash of the abortion industry, they would just ignore that these regulations existed and essentially leave these facilities unregulated, even though the laws were technically on the books, um, depending on who was responsible for oversight, they just would not either, either intentionally not pay attention, um, not make a priority or, you know, go out of their way to not engage in that, in, in that uh, sphere. And so we started in Indiana and Kentucky that had really robust abortion regulations. The states had worked really hard um, to pass good, well-rounded regulations over these abortion facilities. And we found that almost none of them were actually being enforced. So it was, they might as well not exist. And we were hearing stories of really you know, tragic situation of, of pregnant people ending up in the hospital, complications of physicians not reporting uh, abuse on minors. I mean, just really horrific stuff, even though these laws were on the books. And so reprotection was started to, to bridge that gap, find out from the pro-life advocates, what is going on in your community? How is the abortion facility breaking the law? And then getting it into the hands of the people responsible for that and saying, do your jobs. You need to hold these facilities accountable. Um, and we've had a lot of success so far, not only as being a place where people can come and report, like the pregnancy centers and sorry advocates, but actually getting those agencies to move and, and discipline these facilities. Yeah. I think that is so important. I often think the, the thing that came to mind the most while you were speaking is 
how many lives of both women and children could have been saved if reprotection existed when Kermit Gosnell was killing. Um, As someone, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and so I always knew that if someone in my life um, was to get an abortion when I was a teenager, Kermit Gosnell's clinic was among two of the closest. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that I am constantly, I think that that story, for people who don't know, just Google it. There's there's a movie, there's books, there's plenty of information out about um, the kind of horror that went on in Kermit Gosnell's clinic. He's now in uh, federal prison. Um, But it, it, it was exactly that, what you were talking about, the people not wanting to regulate because of the political situation around abortion in Pennsylvania, in this, mm-hmm. you know, spring state where somewhat purple. Um, and it has led to so much, you know, death and injury of women seeking abortions. Um, but crucially, so, so many abortionists um, performing abortions in ways that we have regulations to keep women safe, to protect yes. children, post-viability, et cetera. Um, but someone needs to be doing the work of keeping them accountable because we can't always trust our elected officials to do that. Yeah, the the Pennsylvania Health Department, like the cabinet of the, the secretary, I believe, or whoever was in charge of that specific, specific um, agency was on record saying don't inspect it because it's an abortion facility and basically we don't we don't want to deal with it and it was the dea who ended up going to the facility on on drug charges it wasn't even abortion related uh it was drug charges and that's what led to you know the the exposure of this horrific horrific facility but i mean the 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 cases that we deal with you know, because you would hear from the abortion side, like, these are medically unnecessary, they're just trying to make abortion more difficult to access. No, the stuff that we deal with is, is a, a violation of just basic medical health care. <laughs> so our first closure was an 87 year old man who was showing signs of physical and mental impairment nobody in their right mind would say this guy should be doing surgery. And he was doing surgical abortions on, on pregnant people in his community. And, and his hands were shaking and he was having a hard time communicating. His facility was a disaster. And the agencies were really slow to move on him and investigate him. And I said, if he was practicing in any other field, he would have been retired immediately. He would have been um, like within a hospital or even private practices, like they will retire physicians when they start showing signs of impairment. But because it's abortion, people didn't want to get involved and they allowed this, this physician to keep practicing surgery even though he was showing signs of physical impairment and people were complaining. And so we got involved, we took it to the medical board, um, eventually got the, the investigation open against him and, and he, magically retired the day that the investigation was opened against him. But what the cases that we take are uh, generally just general medical practices that everybody should be following that these abortion facilities aren't. I, I was speaking to a, a friend of ours and, and he had brought his friend to a, to a gathering that we were at. His friend was a doctor. He asked me what I did. And so I told him, and so he's like, oh, that's really interesting. And I'm like, well, you're a doctor. Like, let me explain. 
we have the situation where they're letting their office staff have informed consent conversations with their patients before facilities. And since he's a doctor, immediately he just started rolling his eyes. He was like, really? I was like, yeah. And then they're, you know, putting 10 women in a room and giving them all the abortion pill at the same time. And his, he rolled his eyes so hard. He was like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, we're not talking about laws that, you know, can be argued or if they're medically necessary or not. No, this is just like, this is just general basic human care and practices that these abortionists are not doing. Yeah, I remember back when um, Hellerstadt v. Whole Women's Health was decided by the Supreme Court, which was, um, it was sort of a mixed decision that upheld some abortion clinic regulations and struck down others. Um, But I remember it, so depending on where you where you fell on the issue, no one really felt like they won um, that day. I remember yeah. I was at the Supreme Court, and I remember I was with um, I, that was when I was an intern at Rehumanize back in 2016, I think, and I was mm-hmm. with um, the other intern at the time. Um, her name was Margaret, and she. I remember she broke down crying after the, de- the decision came out, not necessarily because of the decision itself, um, but because of how she saw the the pro-abortion, pro-choice counter-protesters or protesters outside the court um, celebrating the fact that some of the regulations had been struck down. Um, and I remember her saying, like, she, you know, identified as a woman, as a feminist, and she said, like, how could these people who are calling themselves pro-women and feminists, you know, like, these, half of these organizations have feminists in the name, um, be celebrating a decision that makes a medical procedure that basically only women can get unsafe or less safe or or less regulated. Yeah. Less safe, uh, less regulated than, um, you know, any other medical procedure. If it's healthcare, why isn't it regulated like healthcare is? Um, And I think that from that moment, I really started to understand how disturbing it is how politicized the abortion issue is and how it's led to harm for obviously the unborn children being killed, but also their parents. It's just, it's so disturbing how profit motivated these clinics seem to be um, when a lot of these regulations, things like, you know, hallways big enough that stretchers can get through things like that um, were direct responses to women dying because of you know, the, these certain standards, not, I can't get, yeah. Emergency services in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's just, it, it really is striking to see these pro women organizations and these groups that claim that abortion is healthcare want it to be treated like anything other than healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's been really grieving me lately, more so, you know, after being in pro-life work for so many years, part of me has become a little desensitized. You know, I could talk about some pretty graphic descriptions of what I do. I mean, I mean, you kind of have to be to survive in this world. Um, but I, I've been feeling, I've been grieving a little more than usual lately. Uh, just thinking about like, especially with all this stuff with CBS and Walgreens, you know, wanting to make abortion pills accessible there, over the counter, whatever, in the name of empowering women and, like, the people that are most vulnerable are the ones that are paying the price. Like, nobody is empowered by these, these lack of regulations. And if anything, the people that are in those most vulnerable positions are the ones 
that pay the price for this so-called empowerment so that so that these politicians can get up and say i'm for women's whatever blah 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 and have their abortion you know industry approval um the people that are going to these facilities and getting harmed and having uh issues getting medical emergency medical services because of lack of transfer agreements because of um, you know, buildings, not meeting codes, whatever, they are the ones that are paying the price. And it has just really gotten under my skin lately of the hypocrisy of that narrative of, are you really empowering women when they're the ones that are being harmed by this, um, the, these, these lack, the lack of regulations. So it just, um, it's very frustrating. We call it's it, a, there's, there's a term, it's called abortion distortion. It's like, as soon as it's about abortion, people lose their ability to think rationally and uh, logically about this, these decisions. It is wild to me how uh, my fellow people on the left, uh, if it was any other uh medical facility or any corporation, uh, anything like normally we yeah. understand, you know, regulations are not just for the heck of it. Like regulations are for some safety, uh, quality of care purpose. Uh, and mm-hmm. that just on this specific issue, somehow now we all become libertarians on, on regulation. It has always seemed so bizarre to me, uh, truly. So I may, I, I can speak from both sides because I used to be, you know, full blown Republican conservative, like all the way. Now I would consider myself a pro life liberal. Like I've I have spanned the political spectrum, and it has never made sense to me that the pro life view is on the right and the pro choice view is on the left. Because if you look inherently at the concepts, equality, protection, equal rights you know, empowering women, that should be that those those are liberal ideas, you know, and so like, and then you go to the right, and it's like, they don't want government regulation, they want freedom, they want privacy, you know, all that stuff that would be pro abort, like, it just baffles my mind that there's been this like crisscross. And then, you know, but that's, the a, that's a story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But uh, no, you're totally right. I mean, it, that's just, like I said, when it comes to abortion, and I think part of it too is um, probably a lot of it has to do with trauma. A lot of it has to do with fear. And, um, you know, it's almost like a, a, a triggered response from, you know, most of the people that we are protesting against or whatever have probably had their own experience. They're dealing with their own hurt and harm and trauma. So a lot of that is feeling that like when you're, when you're triggered in your trauma, it's, it's hard to stay in your window of being able to um, regulate and think clearly. And so that's where I think a lot of it is, is like people just are, are motivated from hurt and uh, life experiences that are really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed on your website that you mentioned that uh, when you respond to these these situations, you you use the word trauma informed for your, mm-hmm. your staff. Can you talk a little bit about what that means in the context of this yeah. work? Yeah, it was really, really important for us as an organization to distinguish ourselves from some of the other kind of exposure groups because 
there was a little bit of a bad taste in, and especially with the pregnancy centers and the sidewalk advocates, there was a bad taste in their mouth of when they've identified violations before, it's just kind of like splashed all over pro-life media or clients who've had bad experiences have become, become like pawns in the scheme of holding these abortion facilities accountable. And in the process of kind of lost sight of the fact that we're dealing with people who have been through traumatic experiences um, whose well-being needs to come first. Like they are not, a, they are not um, for our use to like, yes, we want to hold the abortion facility accountable at all costs, but not at the cost of the people that just had these traumatic experiences. And so everybody was a little bit like nervous to say, well, can I, am I safe to bring this information to you about a client? Like, how are you going to handle that? Like, are you going to make sure that they're protected in this process? And so we made it a value from very early on um, to be trained by people in um, abortion experience recovery, you know, talking to people um, at the pregnancy centers and saying, our first mission is to care for the, the person that's been through this traumatic experience. Now, if they want to come to us and they want to talk about their experience and they want us to help them file a complaint, absolutely. But if they don't, hands off, like we, their well-being is prioritized. And, and once we started saying that it was, there was a few national leaders that like visibly you could see, like, they're just like, Oh, like sigh of relief, like shoulders down, like, thank God. Like we have just needed a safe place to take these stories and know that it's not their personal information. It's not going to be shared places. Like and we are going to handle them in a way that is honoring their healing. That's not putting any pressure on them. Um, and so we we have gone out of our way to make sure we have the resources that we need to serve these these clients as best as possible. You know, understanding that they're coming from a traumatic experience. Yeah, I think that is so important, and I think that language um, is not. It's not as common in pro-life circles as it probably yeah. needs to be. Um, I think it's, I, I think it's partially like a, it, it can be seen as a semantic thing um, because I think all pro-life people do know that abortion is traumatizing for women um, in, in many cases. Uh, but we don't necessarily have the language often to respond to that um and I particularly okay. respond to that in a way that is secular i think that a lot of abortion healing ministries are ministries from either the catholic church or specific um denominations of, of protestants uh and i think that they do great work and are so important but i think that um there's a whole lot of people who kind of get left out of yeah. the narrative when you're only able to reach them from a religious point of view. And I think that, I think that the way I've seen reprotection speak to people has always been one that is a posture that is more inclusive and um, mm -hmm. sort of aware that, you know, not everyone is going to fit into the cookie cutter mold yeah. that other pro-life organizations might just be used <laughs> to, you know, speaking to, speaking to women. Right. Um, like I yeah and I think part of that is probably me working out my own you know feelings and it just kind of spilling out into the organization you know I I am working as an individual to be a more inclusive person to be you know I've been in therapy for five years to to learn 
um, how to be more empathetic. And, you know, so those are just life skills that I'm taking on to learn. And, and so I think a lot of that is just naturally spilling into the culture that we're building at Reprotection. And, you know, I instill that in the people that I hire, I make sure I'm like, these are the principles. Um, we are inclusive. Like my team is so diverse. It just makes me laugh every day. Um, we are all over the map, religiously, politically. And so, so it's a value that we hold, but then that translates into how we interact with, with people. Um, we do partner um, with support after abortion. So we're, they're the ones that we have found to be uh, the most helpful for what we do because they have, they have a science-based, you know, research-based, um, non-religious abortion recovery programs. And, but they also like, oh, if you do want something religious, they know where to send you, but they recognize that like not everybody is served by that. And so they've become our official partners as far as like resourcing us to know how to, to talk to people who have had abortion experiences, but then also, um, you know, we can send people to them, you know, and so they've, they've began, they've become a really good resource for us and a really good partner. Yeah. For that exact, exact reason. Awesome. And so now um, that uh, Roe has been overturned at the federal level, obviously at the States, you know, everything is kind of different now. Um, what role do you see for uh, reprotection now that in the States that have taken legal action against abortion, yep. um, there is really the ball's kind of in your court now about the issue of enforcement and, uh, yeah. you know, making sure that the law is actually applied. Yeah. So when, when we got the news of the Dobbs decision and, you know, Roe was overturned, um, I let myself celebrate for about 10 minutes and then I went, wow, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> you got so much work to do because all of a sudden, like we already had a problem with uh, abortion uh, regulation enforcement. And now all of a sudden we're about to have an onslaught of new regulations being passed in all these different states. And then you've got the abort. It, it, it was just like, wow, we're going to have to ensure a lot of rules are enforced properly. And so we kind of built out a plan that was like, okay, for the states that have now had the contingency bills, abortion is now illegal. I mean, we, we went through everyone, we scrutinized the law and said, okay, what does enforcement look like of this? Okay, abortion is illegal. So I live in Kentucky. Abortion is now illegal in Kentucky. What does that look like? You know, who is monitoring that? What are the exceptions? Are the abortion facilities exploiting the exceptions and claiming situations of life of the mother when it really wasn't the case? You know, um, are they providing a legal abortion? So we had to really look at these contingency laws and say, at the ground level, when a woman is walking into an abortion facility, what does this look like? And, and who is responsible for oversight to ensure um, compliance? And then we have the states that are, you know, now can pass more regulations. So you're seeing more states pass like 15 week limits and, you know, different, um, different rules, heartbeat, you know, stuff like that. And so we had a case where heartbeat was passed in a state and the facilities are just ignoring that it exists because the enforcement groups were unwilling to step forward and actually enforce it. So it was like, okay, this law is on the books. 
no one's enforcing it. So the abortion businesses are just ignoring that it exists. And so we had to write a memo to the local police department where this facility was and say, hey, by the way, with this new law, this is now in your jurisdiction, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh, thank you so much. We had no idea. You know, it's just the 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 most basic level of like information to get in the hands of these enforcement agencies. Like some of them just genuinely had no idea. We did have some some people that were hostile that were like, I'm not going to. But in this case, they just had no idea. Nobody told them they were responsible for this bill or for this new law. So we have had to do a lot of cleanup and say like, okay, these new laws are on the books. Who is responsible? Do they know they're responsible? You know, how are they enforcing it? Is there documentation that people have to submit? Like, it's not enough to just say this law is on the book. So I'll give you a perfect example. Florida, the state of Florida requires abortion facilities to have transfer agreements and or hospital privileges, right? But that's all the law says. You have to have this. So what abortion facilities are doing is they answer on their little questionnaire. Do you have this? Yes. They don't have to provide any kind of documentation. They don't have to prove this transfer agreement. Or So we start going behind it and we're going, hey, do they actually have a transfer agreement? And the answer is usually no. But because the law technically only said they just have to have it. They check a box. Yeah, I have it. And can you explain why? Why something like a transfer agreement or hospital admitting it's purposes so important. might be important for somewhere that performs surgeries outpatient? I'll give you the perfect example. So, which we'll get into in a minute. This facility that we recently closed in Pensacola, Florida, this exact situation happened. They lied on their application to the state for as an abortion facility. They said, check the box. Yes, I have a transfer agreement. No transfer agreement existed. We went to the hospitals. They said, no, we don't have this. We don't have this. We don't have this. And they were trying to make the case, it's not, it's not necessary. Turns out they had a family medicine physician performing late-term surgical abortions who had no training as an OBGYN and no training in surgery, doing late-term abortions at this clinic in Pensacola. And he was having complications. I mean, that shouldn't that shouldn't shock you that a guy that has no training in surgery or OBGYN doing surgical abortions, he was uh, having complications in these, in these really severe ones, like lacerating uteruses, like cutting your organs that you're not supposed to cut. I mean, all kinds of things. It was, it was very bad. Three women need to be transferred to a hospital. He had no idea the, the, the facility had no emergency protocol. He didn't know what the emergency protocol was. They didn't have a transfer agreement. And what happened, what happens is it interrupts that continuity of care. So women, woman has traumatic experience, woman is bleeding excessively. Instead of being like, here's the protocol, they go straight to this hospital. This hospital has access to their medical records. They know exactly what's going on. They can treat them immediately. If that would have happened, these women could have uh the complications probably would have been less severe. But because that emergency protocol wasn't in place. There was a gap. These women are sitting at the facility. They don't know where to send them. They send them to a hospital an hour away. Once they get to the hospital, the physicians that are at the emergency department have no idea what's going on. They're just like, they have no records to go off of. And all three women, thankfully, 
survive. I mean, the fact that they all survived was a miracle because two of them didn't even have pulses when they showed up. They had lost so much blood at these hospitals. But it has to do with getting women access to care as quickly as possible in the case of an emergency. And when you don't have that, you know, you have these long lapses of time. It takes physicians longer to catch up on what's going on. That in, in, in these critical cases, every minute matters and could be the difference between life and death for some of these people. And so um, having like something like a transfer agreement just ensures that in the case of a complication, which happen, these women get the care they need as soon as possible. And, you know, it saves their lives. And so it sounds like it's not a big deal, but it is. It really is. Um, like I said, especially in these life-threatening situations where a, a minute or two minutes could be the difference between um, a woman coming out with minor complications as opposed to a full hysterectomy. You know, I mean, it's it's really devastating when they can't get that care in time. Well, thank you. So I think we're we're coming up on time a little bit. And so I want to close out with what can we do? I, I'm an active sidewalk advocate in my community. I know a lot of our listeners are do sidewalk advocacy. Um, another plug, I, I do this all the time, but on our website, <laughs> rehumanizeintl.org slash sidewalk advocacy, we have um, pamphlets that you can use if you've never done sidewalk advocacy in your hometown. But also if um, you know, you're affiliated with a, a pregnancy center, you may run into um, people who have had traumatic experiences at abortion clinics mm -hmm. uh, that may not be following the law. So what can we do as just regular pro-life community members do if we know a clinic in our area um, or suspect a clinic in our area might be you know, violating the law or violating basic safety precautions? Yeah. Yeah. The, the best thing to do in the moment is just document, 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 and, and ensure you're doing it in a way that a is not is not getting in the way of you actually connecting with the people um, in in the process. You know, if the people seeking out abortion, um, but just writing down the things that you're seeing, the things that you're hearing. We don't take pictures. We we discourage people from taking pictures. It feels a little bit invasive, especially when a woman's leaving in an ambulance. Like we don't need pictures. We just need to know, you know, what happened, what day, what time, and then we can like pull records. But it's really reporting the things that you see, like document it as much as you can. And then you can actually send us, um, we have a special email report at reprotection.org where you can send us something like, hey, I saw this, I heard this, you know, can you look into that? And and we'll look at it and say like, okay, is this a, is this a violation? Is, do we have a case here? Sometimes you don't, but it's good to at least have that historical information so we know if we, if we consistently hear the same thing, then like, you know, we can open cases, but really keeping documentation of the things that you're seeing and hearing. Um, and you can send it over to us uh, to kind of, you know, look through it and identify like, are there violations happening here? And, and who do we report those to? Because that's honestly the most complicated part is identifying, okay, what actual code was broken? Who's responsible for that code? What is that protocol? So we do all of that, but we need the people on the ground, the sidewalk advocates, the pregnancy center resource team members to be reporting what they're seeing and hearing um, to us so that, so that we can do that investigation. So that's probably the biggest thing. Um, 
if you are at a pregnancy center, we do actually have a class. We have a certification through Heartbeat, um, Heartbeat Academy. It's called Client Safety Advocacy Training, where we actually go through um, a full training on like how do you identify violations, how do you document them appropriately, um, you know, what do we do with that? How do you how do you serve the client um, through that process? So. If you're if you're at a pregnancy center, we're working on getting a version for sidewalk advocates, but we have it for pregnancy centers right now um, on the Heartbeat Academy platform. So you can look up client safety advocacy training. Um, and then if you're really interested, so there's, there's probably a few people that are like, this sounds amazing. And it's usually the people that, again, want to do more behind the scenes, that like the research, that like the policy. Um, we're, we're looking for people who can help us, uh, you know, investigate some of these cases. And so if, if that is just something that sounds really fascinating to you, uh, you can reach out to us and, and we can plug you in, um, if you want to, you know, read hundreds of pages of policy and legal code. <laughs> some people that's not, yeah, perfect, like, no, thank you. <laughs> Well, I'm very grateful for the people who that is their skill set and they are passionate about reading through hundreds of pages of documents. That is Oh, not I love it. I think it's I think it's so interesting. I think it's so interesting. That's my life right now, right? Yeah. Now, too. Yeah, see so you like when That's I go speak places You're outnumbered. You, <laughs> you can like tell who this resonates with because it's always like I'll be talking about it and some people are like their eyes just glaze over they're like no thank you and then other people walk up and they're like this sounds amazing and I'm it's like you'll probably really yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so uh yeah I mean it is a it is a pretty um intensive I mean like if you want to volunteer like you got to be willing to put in the work I mean you we have a lot of stuff to dig through, you know, a lot of information to gather. So it's not, it's not a light volunteer job, but if you, if this sounds amazing to you, then let us know and we can plug you in. Awesome. What's the email for that? Uh, info, just info, info at reprotection.org. Yeah. Awesome. So report is if you have like an actual violation to report that goes directly to our investigators and they, kind of go through those and um, triage, you know, and then info is just any general, or you can go to our website. It's all on there, reprotection.org. Um, you can connect with us that way too. Great. Well, thank you, Missy, so much for joining us. I'm always proud to get to work with you. Uh, Missy also spoke at the Rehumanize Meetup this year at the March for Life just a couple of weeks ago. And it was always nice to connect with um these sort of, I consider you to be a major leader in this movement Thank who you. is so just affirming and welcoming to consistent life ethic, non-traditional pro-life people. Um, I think that it is, it, it's so important to be able to really be a part of this movement. I often feel mm -hmm. like when I talk to people with a consistent life ethic or um, they might identify as pro-life liberals, they sort of feel alienated by the, the mainstream movement, <laughs> the attachments to the Republican Party and a whole bunch of other uh, yeah. sort of culture war baggage that that is tacked yeah. on to the anti-abortion movement, I think for no good reason. And so getting to yeah. work with um, leaders who are really working on the ground and making a difference, who are excited to work with us is, I'm always, so grateful. So 
I am happy to continue working with you and I encourage all of our uh, listeners to check out Reprotection on social media, go to their website, donate if you can, um, and and get involved, especially if you are uh, a sidewalk advocate and following their work so mm -hmm. that perhaps one day you can help. Yeah. And, I, and I'll say too, like, I, I appreciate that you think so highly of my involvement. I, I feel like it's self-serving because I... I feel alienated a lot of times, you know, as feeling a little bit like odd man out of being somebody who does not identify as conservative, barely religious, you know, I don't, I don't know what I am most days. And so for my own mental health and uh, sustainability of this movement, like having people I can go to where I know um, they uh, are in the same kind of position I am is, is really helpful for me too. So. I am thankful for you guys. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. Emiliano, you want to do a, a sign off? This is Emiliano and Herb with the Rehumanized podcast. And thank you all. Uh, we'll see you next month. I waved, but you can't see because we don't record video. Okay, goodbye, everyone. <laughs>